This morning we come in our exposition of Hebrews to chapter 9 and verses 18 to 22. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 18 to 22. We've just read the whole chapter. It begins in verse 18, whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. As you peruse the pages of the New Testament scriptures and think about the vocabulary that is employed with regards to Christ's sacrifice, you will discover this, that the word blood is used more often, the blood of Christ, used more often than either the words death, the death of Christ, or cross, the cross of Christ. The blood of Christ is spoken of more often. Now, all three of these, of course, have a reference to the same thing. They all have a reference to the sacrificial atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. I merely highlight the fact of how, how frequently and thus how predominant uh, the place of Christ's blood is within the, within the scriptures. The focus of what we have in front of us this morning in verses 18 to 22 the focus is on the way in which Christ died. People die every day, and they die in a variety of ways. Many of them, most of them, perhaps, die without blood, without the appearance of blood, the shedding of blood. So it's speaking about the way in which Christ died. His blood was shed. Now, this remains and has been throughout history a predominant point of offense to the natural man. It is a great affront. It's a great affront to, to, to pagan and false religions who cannot bear or tolerate the idea that God, the God, the living and true God, would subject uh, his only begotten son uh, to such a thing, to be executed and his blood to be shed as an open spectacle before the eyes of men. Uh, those, though, who, who lay no claim to other false religions also find this as a great affront, the bloodiness of the gospel. And there are a variety of reasons for that. I mean, at first pass, one might conclude that, well, people generally don't like blood. People don't like the sight of blood. Some people get queasy when they see blood, that a person is lacerated or cut or some other thing. Well, that's fair enough, and that no doubt could contribute in part, but it is, it's not merely that, that kind of common human experience. It's all that this entails, that, that salvation requires the shedding of blood, that there, as our passage says, there is no remission, no forgiveness, no pardon for any soul anywhere at any time without blood being shed. That is, without a substitutionary sacrifice. Right? This, is what's this is what is so offensive. Because the natural man has embedded within their souls a sense of their, in, their own innate goodness. Yes, they have problems, and they have issues, and they make mistakes, and so on and so forth. But at the heart of their thinking, 
they, they have this notion of an ability to contribute something, uh, the ability to do something, the ability to, in one degree or another, commend themselves. And the gospel comes and slays, destroys, obliterates every bit of that notion and says, no, you bring nothing. Blood has to be shed on your behalf. Blood has to be applied to your own soul in order for there to be any hope of redemption. We turn now in our, our continued exposition of Hebrews, and the point of the text here in verses 18 to 22 is really underlining the necessity of the shedding of Christ's blood. This is what's being highlighted, the necessity of the shedding of Christ's blood. And we note in the words that follow that the Old Testament history confirmed this. It confirmed that this would be the, the case. Now, it would be easy enough for the Apostle Paul to say, well, you know, blood was important in the Old Testament and, um, and there was, it was indispensable for purification and so on and so forth. He wouldn't have to say much to say that to these, these Hebrews. But he's drawing a connection from that to the fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's what's being, that is what is being accentuated here. And what we learn is that the use, not just the necessity of blood, but the use of blood under the, under the law demonstrates the efficacy of Christ's blood, of Christ's sacrifice, of the use of Christ's blood in securing the purification of his people and their permanent pardon. This is what the blood of Jesus Christ delivers to the believing soul. So the title of our sermon is The Blood of the Testament, taken from uh, the language of verse 20. But we're going to note three things. First of all, consecration by blood. First of all, consecration by blood, verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Whereupon, he says. In other words, he's drawing an inference from what he's already said. And this goes back to verse 14. How much more shall the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit uh, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works. And then even more proximately, verse 16, for where a testament is, there must also of, ne of necessity be the death of the testator. So he's building upon that. And he's speaking of this Old Testament, the first testament, being dedicated, right, consecrated, He's speaking about the, the ratification of the covenant. He's saying that it was dedicated or consecrated with blood. It was through the means of blood that it was consecrated. And this, of course, is a reference back to Exodus 24, which we read for our Old Testament reading, and which is quoted again in verse, in verse 20. This consecration of the covenant, that second book of the Bible. You go back and look at chapter 24, and there's a great deal that could be said about this very important text. But Moses comes to the people with all of the words 
of the covenant. So these are God's words, the words that God himself has spoken. He comes with those words. And so on, on God's side, there's proclamation. Here's, here are the terms and here is the content of my covenant. But then on the people's side, you have their affirmation. So in verse 3, for example, all the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. And then verse 4, Moses had written all the words of the Lord down uh, in a book. And then sacrifices were made. And then you see uh, that, that both the book and the people are, are sprinkled. Now we'll say more about this in just a moment. But this is the first occasion, the first recorded occasion, where God refers to himself as the God of Israel. After the whole, the various steps of this ceremony, we read in verse 10, and they saw the God of Israel. This on the heels of all that has been, uh, all that has taken place in the consecration of the covenant. You'll know here that in Exodus 24, that the whole context is that of, of redemption, right? He says at the beginning of the section that culminates in chapter 24, you go back to chapter 19, you have all of the context given to us for the giving of the Ten Commandments. Then you have the preface to the Ten Commandments. You have the, the moral law, and then you have case laws in chapters 21, 22, and 23, all of which provide some of the content. So at the very onset, at the beginning, he opens with a declaration that he's the God who has brought them up out of the land of Egypt. The whole thing is set in the context of, of redemption. And you know that that itself was bloody. You, you remember, all the children here know well the story of, of the Passover, how the Lord had warned the people that they had to put aside a Pascal lamb, that that lamb had to be slain, its blood had to be shed, and then it had to be put upon the, the lentil and posts of the door, and that the angel of the Lord was going to come, and he was going to pass over the land of Egypt, including the land of Goshen, and he would slay and destroy and kill all of the firstborn, except for those who were covered, whose homes were covered with blood. And the angel of the Lord, seeing the sight of that blood, he would then pass over that home. And the firstborn within the home would be spared as, as a consequence of that. Right? So there's blood right there and uh, at the very beginning. And then, of course, as they, they come out of Egypt and the Lord's deliverance and sacrifices are made and all that transpires at Sinai and so on and so forth. But the point is that it was blood which underlined redemption, which demonstrated the Lord's willingness through sacrifice to spare those who would otherwise not be spared. And it points, of course, all of that points, as you well know, to the great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Paschal Lamb of his people. Or as we read in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed or slain for us. And so that Old Testament Jew coming uh, up to the tabernacle, loaded with a sense, convinced of their own guilt, convinced 
of their sin, convinced of the justness and equity of God's sentence of death that hung over their own heads, but coming up with the appointed sacrifice that the Lord had given to them, they could see in all of the sacrifices the provision of gospel grace and of mercy. And the believing Israelite in the exercise of that faith would take refuge in the anticipation of the coming of Christ Jesus. And so it is consecration by blood. The covenant's consecrated by blood. There is no bloodless sacrifice. There's no bloodless sacrifice. This speaks, by the way, doesn't it, to, to Rome with its idolatrous mass and their perpetual bloodless sacrifice. They refer to the mass as a fresh sacrifice. Here's a sacrifice that's, that's being enacted before the presence of God. Christ is being crucified afresh. No blood. Bloodless sacrifice is, has no efficacy in it. And of course, you have all the other idolatry that associated with their abomination and superstition. Consecration by blood. What does this achieve for the people of God? The, the consecration by blood of the covenant. You think back to 1 John uh, chapter 1, where we're told in verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. Or in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The whole context here of the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ is in the context of fellowship. Right, you look at the you look at verse three, you look at verse six of first John one. The aim here is communion with God, of bringing a people into intimate, affectionate communion and fellowship with God Himself. And the the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ is what is appointed in order for men and women, boys and girls, sinners, sons of Adam, to be brought into a saving fellowship and into sweet and, and, and intimate communion with the God of, of heaven. And that covenant, that fellowship is at the very heart of the covenant, isn't it? That we are brought to have share in the fellowship that exists within the Godhead himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are brought into communion with God in time and for eternity. That covenant is consecrated by blood. You know absolutely nothing of the Lord Jesus Christ until you know this, until you know that his blood was shed, the, the significance of the shedding of his blood, and the application of that blood to your own souls. Knowing Christ is knowing something of what it means for him to be Christ crucified. Here is sinless humanity. Here is a, a holy sacrifice without blemish, without fault, uh, without spot, being offered before God in the place of his own people. This truly speaks better things than that of Abel. Why? Because it is the blood of the Son of God.
It is the blood of the Son of God. And it brings with it divine merit. It brings with it divine virtue and divine value because it is the blood of the Son of God. And so we have the cons consecration by blood. Secondly, we have the application of blood. Verses 19 and 20. Application of blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. When Moses had spoken, Moses functioned as a, a symbol, a picture of the mediator. He was in his role, appointed by God, in a measure, a mediator in this, in this Mosaic covenant. And you think of how this, this comes out in a variety of ways uh, elsewhere. For example, uh, you have in Galatians 3 verse 19, wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And so here is Moses. We, we're, we're conscious, and Israel was conscious, that this covenant that's been consecrated between God and man has to be found in the hands of a mediator. Ultimately, of course, Christ is the mediator of the covenant. Moses is merely a type of that, just as Aaron is a type of Christ as the great high priest to come. And so Moses comes and we're told in verse 19 that he had spoke, when he had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law. He spoke every precept. Interesting, because as you go back to that Exodus 24 passage and read there, you discover that he wrote it all down. That in fact it is the first reference that we have to God's word being put into writing. It was in the days of Moses, and it was on this occasion that God, for the first time, put his word in writing in order that it might be heard and read, even seen by, by all the people. And it was to be read to all the people and by all the people. In other words, God didn't come as we have with so many false religions and deliver his mysteries to the, the priests who then hoard away these things and keep them in secret and only bring out little pieces here and there. No, this was an open, full disclosure to all the people of God. It was the people themselves who were given the word of God, not the priests merely, who then would be able to come and tell them something about it. That's kind of the model we get with Rome. But rather, the word of God is given for the people and to the people. In that writing, so much of it was in reference to the worship that God appointed under the Old Testament ceremonies. And they were able to see there's no worship. There's no true worship without God's word. Here it is. We can prove. We can have our faith exercised. We can have confidence and the ordinances that he's given to us. We take these things for granted. You have, a, you have a Bible at your bedside. You may have one in your car. You have one on your phone. You've got one in the living room. You have a Bible in your lap right now, this morning. We take for granted 
the fact that we have the written word of God in our hands, and it can be put into our minds, and by God's grace, into our hearts, that the words on the page are the very words, inspired words of God, which are hidden away within our our own souls. We, my friends, should be thankful, abundantly thankful, that we have the written word. Interesting, our Westminster divines picked up on this in, in their first chapter, where they speak about how for the better preservation and for other good purposes, his word was put in writing. And this is a doctrine that is not only important, but precious to us, that we have the written word of God. And so you go back to Exodus 24, what's happening? The, uh, the sacrifices are offered, blood is shed, and, and, and the blood's divided. So half of the blood is, is put onto the altar upon which the book sat. And so the blood is being put onto the book, on, uh, on the altar, and the other half of the, of the blood is to be sprinkled upon the people. And you have a picture here that there is God's part, or from God's side, and man's part, or from man's side, that we are saved both Godward and, and manward, that the Lord is coming to provide a full salvation both in the pardon of our sins, justification by faith and being reconciled to God and declared righteous in his sight and our sins being borne away, as well as the purification of our souls and the work of sanctification and the Lord cleansing us uh, from from all of, of our sins. You say, yeah, but the book, I mean, this is God's law. This is God's word. Why would the book need to be sprinkled with blood? Well, the book contained precepts. And all the precepts that it contained reflected Israel's sin against them. In other words, they're broken precepts, transgression, transgressed precepts, sin, iniquitous. And so the, the book is sprinkled as well, and there's another reason I'll come back to in a, in, a, in a second. And so here they took the priest took scarlet wrapped with hyssop, or hyssop wrapped with scarlet wool, and the blood mixed with water. And then they took and dipped this this collection of branches mixed with scarlet wool into the the mixture of blood and water, and they would mix it and then sprinkle it. Right, it was the instrument through which. They sprinkled the, the blood upon the altar, upon the book, upon the people, and, and so forth. That mixture of, of blood with water, you think, well, maybe a practical purpose is it thins the blood and makes it easier to sprinkle. That may be, but it makes us more importantly think of Christ's cross. Right there, you see the description in John 19, for example, and from him flowed both water and blood in his sacrifice upon the cross. These types are being fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. And John doesn't miss the significance of this because in his first epistle, he comes back to it and says in chapter 5, verse 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is, is truth. 
But what we need to recognize here in all of the descriptions that are given, not just the theological content, the spiritual import, the tie and connection objectively to the person and work of Jesus Christ, his sacrifice and blood, but there's something else that's being reinforced here, reinforced here, and it is application, the application of the blood to the people. What do I mean? Think with me. There is a distinction, a difference, though the two are intimately connected, between the blood being shed and the blood being sprinkled. Both of these things are indispensable. The blood being shed, the sacrifice, the, the, the bloodletting was its own thing. There's, a, there's an atonement that's being made. But then there's the sprinkling of that blood. That, that is underlining the application of the blood to the people itself, right? It, it demonstrates contact. They have contact with the blood. The blood is actually placed upon them. And what's, what's being underlined here is the fact that in reference to Christ's sacrifice, the shedding of his blood, there must also be the communication of all of the benefits of that to people, right? There must be participation in the benefits of Christ's atoning sacrifice. It's one thing for, for, for us to come and to preach the gospel and to say, here is Christ crucified. Here is the Lamb of God. Here is the one who has made the definitive atonement for all sin. For all of his people, that's one thing. That's preaching what is objectively true and is absolutely indispensable to the gospel. But you can say all of that and stop there. And to do so is to fail. Not only Christ's work for us, we need Christ's work in us. We need not only redemption accomplished, we need redemption applied and so we also must press the necessity of the application of the blood that we, to use the language, are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ, that he actually washes away our sin, that his atoning sacrifice is applied to our own souls. That too must be emphasized and it's reflected in this passage, in the sprinkling of the people. Some of you are very happy. You're happy enough to be in the visible church. You're happy enough to be in a Bible-believing church. You're happy enough to, to hear the gospel. You think to yourself, I'm in a good place. I'm in a safe place because the gospel is preached here. I know that in the pulpit that, that, that Christ crucified will be set forth, that there is a, 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 a tenacious attachment to the fact that Christ alone provides the atonement for sinners and so on. But you're content to rest there. And you feel safe there. And you're wrong. I mean, it is good to be under the means of grace. Oh, to God that the whole of our community was under the preaching of the gospel. What a place of privilege. But my friends, the Lord comes to us in the preaching of the gospel and he says, This blood... This sacrifice, this atonement, this cross work, it has to be applied to your own soul. You must have your own conscience 
cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ. And that reinforces, doesn't it, that you hear the preaching of the gospel and respond to it with faith. That in hearing about this accomplished work of salvation in and through Jesus Christ, that your heart is drawn out to lay hold of him and to lay hold of all that he has done. To say, O oh Lord, grant that as I confess my own sins, grant that as I come empty to the Savior, that thou wouldst be pleased to wash and cleanse me from all unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ, that I would be a recipient of these, these mercies. In verse 20, we're told that Moses said, this is the blood of the testament which God hath enjoined unto you. This is a quotation now from Exodus chapter 24. This sacrificial blood was a confirmation. It was a sign. It was a token between God and man about the mutual engagements within the covenant. And it's actually this language that's used by our Lord himself at the institution of the Lord's Supper. You, know, you come in the Gospels and Jesus says, this is the New Testament in my blood. And everyone who's reading that think to themselves, oh, okay, this is language taken from the Passover and right, we're at the, you know, the context is Passover. This is, you know, we, we'll tie that language to the Passover. This is the New Testament in my blood. It's wrong. That language is a quotation not from the Passover in the first instance, but to the ratification and consecration of the covenant in Exodus 24. Now, I preached a whole chunk of a whole sermon on the significance of that when I was preaching through that series of 10 sermons on preparation for the Lord's Supper. So I'm not going to repeat all that here. Some of you will recall it. You could go back and, and, and review it there. But Jesus is saying, my blood is the confirmation of the New Testament. This is, this is it. And this is beautiful. Because in the application of that blood to the believing soul, you can come and, and I can ask you, do you love the blood of Jesus Christ? Do you love the blood of Jesus Christ? Think of yourself in the context of that sacrament of the, Lord, uh, of the Lord's Supper. Do you take that cup and think, I love the blood of Jesus Christ? To drink the blood of Jesus Christ by faith. To appropriate by faith all that that sacrifice represents. When you take that cup to your lips, is your heart saying, I love it? I would die without it. I need desperately its transforming power. That's what's being underlined for us. That's what's being emphasized. This is why in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 9, it's referred to as the precious blood of Jesus Christ. For those who enjoy the application of, the blood to their, uh, to, of his blood to their own souls, we're not talking about carnality and physicality and physical blood being applied to our physical bodies. 
We're talking about the spiritual application of Christ's sacrifice to our souls so that our consciences are cleansed. For those who appropriate, who receive that, who enjoy that, who come under it, this language of the precious blood of Jesus Christ comes alive to us, right? The word precious is the word we often associate with, and the Bible uses, in connection with metals. So you can have a chunk of lead, that's a metal, and then you can have a bar of gold, and that's a metal. Iron is just a common metal. Gold is a precious metal. Silver is a precious metal, right? It underlines the value of that particular metal, value that's attributed to it. And so we come and it says the, the precious blood, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's precious because as we saw a moment ago, it is the blood of, of the Son of God. It's the blood of the Son of God. It's, it's valuable in the first instance to whom? It is precious to the Father before precious to anyone else. The shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ is precious, is valuable because it's the blood of his own Son. Never did the Father love the Son more than in his bloodletting and his atoning sacrifice upon the cross, the whole purpose for which he had been sent from the Father. And the Father gazes upon that blood. He accepts that blood as a sufficient atonement for the sins of his people. And the Father says, this is precious. This is golden blood, far far greater value than real gold could ever be. And so it is precious first and foremost to the Father. We begin there. We, we really must begin there. But having begun there, the question then comes, shall it not be precious to me then? Is it not precious to me? Do I indeed find the blood of Jesus Christ precious? Do I value it as the Father values it? Right? This is driving us in terms of the sprinkling of the blood, the application of the blood to, to the souls of, of the Lord's people. Right? This blood is the ransom that is paid for sinners. This blood is the cost of redemption. Here, people are purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. They're bought back and delivered from bondage by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're redeemed from the guilt of sin, redeemed from the defilement of sin, redeemed from the power of sin, all by the blood of Jesus Christ, all through his shed blood, through his sacrifice and atonement. Do you count that blood precious? That's the searching question for us. But it's one that has to be answered within your own heart this morning. There's some of you who would say, yes, I see that it's sufficient to save sinners. Yes, I see that it is the blood of the Son of God. Yes, I see that it is the way to salvation and so on and so forth. All of which is good. But you will not say, this is all my hope and stay. This blood sprinkled upon my soul.
the application of the blood, more precious to me than anything. If you gave me a million universes and that beside, I would not trade them for a single drop of the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all of my sins. What say you of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? For the Lord's people who are in a state of grace, there is a resonance within the soul to these words. All of those pictures of the hyssop wrapped with scarlet wool and the, the, um, the blood and water being sprinkled upon the people. The Lord's people resonate with that picture. You know, to be a recipient of, of that blood, to be showered by that blood, is the delight of our souls. This sprinkling of the blood of Christ is what's being referred to in Romans chapter 6, verse 3. The sprinkling of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is what it means to be baptized into Christ's body. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Our union with Christ and all the saving benefits that come to us through him. Thirdly, there is pardon through blood. Verses 21 and 22. Pardon through blood. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without shedding of blood is no remission. So, you know, some come to this text and they say, well, you know, what's referred to in verses 21 and 22 isn't found in Exodus 24. Correct. That's why he says at the beginning of verse 21, moreover. Right now, he's not speaking about Exodus 24. He's speaking about the Old Testament institutions and economies and economy generally. He's saying, in addition to what we've been seeing in Exodus 24, everything else under that ceremonial system involved blood. The tabernacle, all the vessels of, of the ministry, in other words, all the ways and all the means of worship were also sprinkled with blood as well. It's not, as I said earlier, it's not just the necessity of blood. It's the efficacy, right? The power of Christ's blood to remove sin. It is able to remove sin from worshipers and from their worship and all of the components of that, that worship. You think, well, again, this ties us back to the sprinkling of the book. Why does the tabernacle need to be sprinkled? Why do all the vessels of the ministry need to be sprinkled? These were declared holy by God, and they were given by divine appointment and prescription. The answer is because in their use, they were polluted by men. As soon as men begin to touch them, handle them, employ them, use them, they're defiled through the use and polluted by, by men itself. Why is this important? This is why it's important. Because it is both the believer and the means of grace that we use that are made acceptable through Christ's sacrifice. You say preaching is an ordinance of worship, reading of the Bible, singing of the Psalms, prayer, baptism, Lord's Supper, vows, so on and so forth. It's true, these are holy ordinances that God has appointed. 
but they're ordinances and means of grace that are employed by us so that, so that both our persons as well as our worship are faulty and must be cleansed with the blood of Jesus Christ, made acceptable through Christ's sacrifice. If we approached our worship with this in mind, it would make a difference. My ability to sing this psalm is dependent on the sprinkling of the blood of Christ, both my person and my singing. You can open your Bible, and there are white pages with black print. But in a sense, if you'll allow me, it's not just ink on the, on the page. What you find inscribed on the page is inscribed with the blood of Jesus Christ. Every word of this book covered with blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we opened our Bibles and read the words on the page as words soaked with the blood of Jesus Christ, we would read them with greater reverence and we would handle them with greater awe and value them more. When we go to pray, ordinance appointed by God, we recognize those prayers must be, they're according to the will of God, they're in Christ's name, they're by the Spirit, they're Trinitarian, all those components, they need to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ in order to be made acceptable before the Lord. That's what's being brought to the fore here. In verse 22, he says, and almost all things are by the law purged. Notice the word almost all things. Why? Because there were some things that were purified by fire and a few things purified by water. But notably, none of those things were things that pertain to the actual conscience. Most everything, including those things pertaining to what relates to the sinful souls, was purged with blood. And so here the Lord comes and he's He's underlining for us the fact that the soul that sinneth, it shall die, in the language of Ezekiel. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. And so the only remedy is for a substitute to die in their place. That results in verse 22 in a purging and in remission. Purged, and then it says, purged with blood. And then it says, without the shedding of blood is no remission, that is no forgiveness, no pardon for sin. Cleansing comes through the blood of Jesus Christ. You've heard, we've said this before, but we, we typically think of blood as something that stains. You know, you cut your leg when you're out working in the yard and your sock gets soaked with blood. The sock's stained. You have to do certain things. Ladies will know how to treat the stains that are, you know, uh, that come as a result of, of blood and so on. But here we have the reverse. The Lord says our sins are stained. Our souls, rather, are stained by sin. And that they're deep penetrating stains that nothing can expunge but the blood of Christ. And here the application of blood takes what is stained 
and makes it clean, makes it white. Jesus has loved us, Revelation 1 verse 5, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You think of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Ephesians 1, verse 7, and many others. We are cleansed from the guilt of sin. We're cleansed from the filth of sin. And it's amazing because his blood is shed once. There's no repetition of it. His blood is shed once, and yet it is applied often. It is applied repeatedly to our souls. We are confessing our sins this morning and he's cleansing us afresh from our sins. He cleanses from all sin. There is no guilt that is too high and there are no stains that are too deep that the blood of Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice cannot cleanse us from. But it's not just the purging or cleansing, it's also the pardoning. You think of uh, the sacrifices and at times you're a little overwhelmed when they have these occasions where all these animals are being sacrificed and you can almost picture it, right? You see all of the blood, right? The altar is covered in blood. The base of the altar is covered in blood. Bowls are filled with blood. The, the volume of blood, the impact that has upon our conscience, the remedy for our depravity is blood. Here we are given forgiveness, pardon from our condemnation, pardon from our punishment, right here, right now, immediately available, applied, and enjoyed by the people of the believing people of God, forgiven for all that condemns us, alleviated from all of the punishments that hang over us. The Lord granting to us the mercy of forgiveness. Well, if there is no remission without the shedding of blood, then there is absolutely no hope without interest in Christ's blood. We are locked under the law, and we have wrath hanging over us without the cover that is given in the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel is a call to run and to take shelter, to run under the cover of Christ's blood, to be delivered from the wrath to come, to be delivered from the curse of the law through Christ who bore the wrath, through Christ who was the curse of the law, through Christ who shed his blood as a sacrifice for sin. Here is forgiveness and pardon. And for those who are fearful and anxious and wringing their hands and uncertain and whose feet are shifting and hearts are quaking, the Lord is coming in, in, this, in this passage and he's saying, see it, fix your gaze, look in the pages of scripture upon the crucified Christ, hear what God the Lord himself has said. He speaks peace. Because he comes declaring that the blood of Jesus Christ has indeed been shed for us. And that in Christ Jesus, the preaching of Christ, forgiveness for sin is set before us. 
you think, well, I've, you know, I've, I've, I've had a hard heart all, all these years, and I, I've, I've refused the gospel these innumerable times, and I have this sin in my past, and that sin, and I've sinned against with a high hand, and I've been presumptuous, and I've sinned against holy things, and I've, I've gone, and, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And the Lord says to, to, says to you this morning, the, son of, the blood of my son is able to cleanse you from all of that and infinitely more. Come to me. Come in dependence upon the bloodletting of the Son of God because here crimson sinners are washed white as snow. A fountain for sin and uncleanness has been opened to us. And we are plunged within the blood of the Lamb of God who taketh up and beareth away the sins of all who come to him by faith. Let's stand together for prayer. O Lord, our God in heaven, we come in the name and through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. O Lord, we are conscious the mercy seat has been sprinkled with blood before which we appear. That the Lamb himself as one who is slain is seated upon the throne. We're conscious that our prayers have to be purified with his atoning sacrifice. That our persons have to be cleansed and pardoned through his cross work. And so we come, O Lord, even in these prayers dependent upon him and thankful to him and rejoicing, O Lord, that the Lamb of God has been slain, rejoicing over the glory that is magnified of thine own being, rejoicing that thou, O Father, dost find this blood precious yourself. O Lord, give to us to take refuge under, under it. Bring it home to our own hearts and bosoms. Cleanse us from every sin, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.